The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in March 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the veteran actor, Michael Kumpstey. How do you being called a veteran actor? I just went through my head. I think it's the first (laughs) time I've been called a veteran actor. (laughs) Well, I'm looking at uh, more than two decades because in 1987 you made your off-Broadway debut at the Roundabout Theater Company here in New York with Man and Superman. Mm -hmm. Now, 20-some-odd years later, 21 years later, you're back at Roundabout in Sunday in the Park with George, the revival of Sondheim show. Mm -hmm. In between, doing shows like Romeo and Juliet, your Broadway debut in 1989, Artist Descending a Staircase case, the revival of 1776, the musical, uh, Copenhagen in 1999, in uh, 2001, revival of 42nd Street, Democracy in 2004, Hamlet at Classic Stage Company in 2005, for which you won the Obie Award, and very recently, starring in Richard III and co-directing it as well. We'll get mm-hmm. to all of that, mm-hmm. but let's start with Sunday in the Park with George. Of course, you played two... Can we start by... Yeah. Am I asking you if I can have a copy of this? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a pr- pretty good dossier of you, don't we? <laughs> it looks like something out of the FBI. And I left out a whole bunch of credits, some of which we'll get to, but I just oh, wanted okay. to kind of hit the highlights, the ones I highlighted there in yellow. <laughs> uh, Sunday in the Park with George, the revival yeah. currently at, uh, at Roundabout. Obviously, uh, like most of the actors, you played two characters, mm-hmm. one in the first act, one in the second. Mm-hmm. First act, you played Jules, mm-hmm. who is one of those gentlemen walking through the park on a Sunday. Right, exactly. He... Um, Jules is uh, an artist who apparently went to school with George um, and is quite talented, I think we're supposed to believe. I think he's a pretty good artist, but he doesn't doesn't live by the fire in his soul, so to speak. You know, he's uh, he's a good craftsman, he's a good technician, but I think he's more interested in the fairly comfortable lifestyle. And, you know, frankly, who can blame him? And uh, he... uh, He's probably the kind of guy who has a good deal of commercial success but is quite prepared to think of himself as, you know, working with the interior decorator rather than, you know, being a, a, a passionate creative force. And um, and it's interesting that the way the, the piece is structured that uh, George in the second act has a lot in common with Jules in the first act, that the problems that George faces in the second act are in some ways a result of commercial pressure and, you know, uh, uh, being stuck in a groove, expecting to continue to produce stuff that is commercially successful. George, the second act character, I should just say, is 100 years later, a different George, Nin- the uh, right, grandson. 1984, yeah. yeah. Of the other George in the 1800s. George, sorry, in the 1800s, yes, and uh, 1900s. 1840. 1800s, yeah, like, like 100 years earlier. Roughly. <laughs> century. Time I flies. am veteran. Time flies. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, Jules is, an, is a fun character to play because he's a little bit, uh, he, I think the authors are making fun of him a little bit. You know, he's a little bit silly. But there are there are moments when I think he says things that, that, that are very true. I actually, last time I saw you, John, was at MoMA where you were doing uh, – interviews of the Sunday cast, and we were in the middle of an exhibit of the drawings of Georges Seurat, Mm -hmm. and I had an interesting reaction to those drawings, which was that um, for anyone who doesn't know the paintings of Seurat, what's most distinctive about them is what came to be known as pointillism, right? Where he he paints in dots, he doesn't paint in strokes, he paints in dots of color, and and, uh, that has all sorts of sort of Positive, positive aspects to it. It makes the, the combination of the colors very intense to the eye and all sorts of sort of scientific optical advantages to painting that way. But what it takes out is the life of a 
paint stroke or a pen stroke or something. And those drawings that we were among in that exhibit um, were full of strokes. They were done with with, uh, what's called Conte crayon, this dark gray crayon. And the life of the stroke he puts into them is incredible. It's really sort of, he creates this wonderful sort of diaphanous thing in in his drawings. And so much so that I felt that I responded to those works more than I respond to the paintings. I actually felt like in some ways those were, were more compelling works of art than the paintings, which is the position my character takes in the play. Mm, he says to George, what are you doing now? You mm. used to be so good, and now you've taken a wrong turning. So from my ignorant position, I think maybe, I, you know, I'm on Jules' side of the debate anyway. <laughs> well, th- those are kind of, I guess, his, his charcoal uh, drawings and, uh, and uh, others. Not, 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 not his there's no color in those right, drawings, right. and he's not painting with dots. He's not, he's right. not putting dots on the yeah. page. He's putting sweeps of this crayon, and he was a master at it. They are absolutely gorgeous. And then he went into this other area. You know, many great artists, like Picasso, of course, went through various phases, and I'm sure Seurat, who died at the age of 31, I'm sure he would have perfected pointillism and then and then moved on to something else had he had the opportunity but um those gosh those drawings that we were standing in front of were so mm-hmm. beautiful and many of those little dots were really more like little squares kind of like on a modern widescreen television you think of pixels these yeah. were kind of the pixels of the 1800s where individually up close you see them for individual little squares you back away 10 or 15 feet and they mesh together into one picture yes exactly um, yeah he was playing with he was playing with optical scientific discoveries and it was remarkable work yeah Some have suggested that in writing Sunday in the Park, Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine, even in putting the show together, adopted a pointillistic approach. And I'm wondering what it's like to work within that show because it's not naturalistic, Mm -hmm. nor is it... Um, taking the form of a conventional musical comedy. It is. Uh, it's a, a good observation, and I think a true one, that, that there's a lot of uh, metaphor for pointillism in the work. Uh, just for example, the um, the number that starts the second act, um, when everybody's standing in the formation of the painting, and then they start complaining about the fact that it's hot up here, and the, and the song called Hot Up Here. And people, uh, every character throws in phrases, there's a, a, a longer stretch. Dot has a longer stretch in the middle of it. But basically, the song of, is composed of these tiny little phrases of basically of complaint that every member of the company is throwing in. And that is, you know, exactly a musical metaphor for pointillism. And and sort of in the larger canvas of the, of the piece as a whole... Um, the characters, are, you could hardly even call them scenes that we get to play. We, they're sort of vignettes. They're, they're the tiniest structure that, you know, could be described as a dramatic interaction between two characters. Um, and he just drops these tiny little bits of drama in and then connects them through George. And again, I would say that's a metaphor for pointillism. It's, it, it, it creates a certain difficulty because you have to, with as little through line as as he can possibly give you, you have to sort of sustain an arc of character. Um, but he does a very good job of making, you know, making that possible. It's hard to sing it. I'm not a singer, principally. I'm not even really, you know, a good singer secondarily. They do offer me musicals every now and then, but largely because they want me to act them. So I've had a lot of difficulty, to be honest, singing these these numbers, especially the ones where you just have to throw the tiniest piece in because sometimes 
as you well know, I mean, the way he puts notes together is unusual. It doesn't always sound completely melodic, and and his he changes time signatures pretty frequently, and the rhythms within his songs are pretty complex. So when you get an amateur like myself, you know, trying to come in not only on exactly the right beat rhythmically, but on exactly the right note. <laughs> I mean, I'm much happier when I can just stand among a group of really great singers and disappear. <laughs> so how how did you handle that then when you had to sing this very difficult material? You know, they were immensely gracious. The musical director was fantastic with me. And... Um, I really do, literally, I'm, I'm, I'm not being over-modest. I have a history of sort of coming to terms with producers about doing musicals. For example, when I did 42nd Street, the Dodgers very generously said, if you can't sing the 11 o'clock number, we'll deal with that, you know. And I worked pretty hard, and in the end, I did sing the 11 o'clock number. But in order to finish the show with a bang, they put in a four-minute four 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 tap number after my my final song so that it would end the show with a punch. Um, and uh, and before that, when I did 1776, also they said, you know, don't worry about the singing. And my song, Cool Considerate Men, my character sings, but he's singing it in front of, I think, I forget how many, but perhaps as many as nine um, conservative congressmen. And I had guys singing with me who had these great conservatory trained voices so I could really just sort of you know be snooty and 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 cold in the center of them and these guys really carried the song so I've really kind of um I've been cut a lot of slack in terms of singing on Broadway this one I couldn't avoid you know the musical director said to me you've just you know you just sort of have to be there uh it's Sondheim music, you know, it's the way he wrote it. You have to come in and you have to sort of, you know, you have to carry your own burdens in this one. So I did. I worked really hard. But in the process, I have to say, I found myself being distracted from what normally I would completely take in stride. And once or twice I was, you know, dropping lines or missing entrances or whatever. And so I instituted a policy myself, uh, which was that every time I screw up, I have to pay Daniel Evans, who's playing George, I pay him five bucks. <laughs> so, so how's he doing? He's doing really well. <laughs> now, your, 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 your big first song near the beginning of the show you play opposite Jessica Molaski, and Jessica, of course, is a singer. She's so a how do the two of you then work together on that? Well, we, um, we sort of... Uh, when we started working on it, Jessica has this, this you know, gorgeous, high, fluting... She's a great singer. She's a great jazz singer. She's a very successful jazz singer. And, um, and she has this glorious voice. So she was sort of singing it at her most beautiful, and I was essentially speaking it. And they decided that they needed some a bit more of a balance. So I, I've gone further towards singing it. I wouldn't say Jessica's pulled off it all that much. Um, but what we do is we, is sort of we try to sort of play the scene of these two people who are sort of brittle and uh, very sort of conscious of social position and conscious of the way they're being perceived even while they're looking at the painting. And... Um, and are being sort of snooty and derisive in songs, so it takes it takes some of the pressure off. There are those famous combinations of non-singing actors with famously singing actresses. I'm thinking of Rex Harrison and yes. Julie Andrews, for well, example. Well, yes. Well, you've done that. You I, played. I, I, I did. I, I Henry played Higgins. Henry Higgins out at Princeton in a in a in, um, 
what what do we what do we call those small productions now? Sort of. Well, uh, it was a chamber version. Sort of a was, chamber, it, was it even the just the two piano for. version? It perhaps, was just the two piano lady. version. Exactly. There were there was no orchestra to speak of. Two pianos and uh, and I think a group of only nine actors. Mm-hmm. But it was beautiful, and it, but it sort of returned it more into the world of Pygmalion with songs and. Uh, you know, and and of course Henry Higgins doesn't have to sing them. You know, mm. I would love to be able to really sing. You're working with with a very uh, young director, Sam Buntrock, who's 32. He directed this Sunday in the Park with George mm-hmm. in in London. Mm-hmm. How was it working with him with a, with a British director? I like this? I like him very much. Um, he, you know, people people talk about him being young all the time. But somebody pointed out in one of the talkbacks we do at the theater that James Lapine was 32 when he directed it. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, but but he, yeah, he he's he's relatively young. He hasn't had a great deal of uh, experience co- uh, directing plays commercially, Sam, because he took a bunch of years off and worked as an animation director when he was in his twenties. So he has a vast amount of experience in that arena, which he also came by honestly because his father was an animator before him, and whenever he was on vacation from school, he would work as an animator. So he's got this vast amount of experience, which contributed so much to the visual element of our production. Um, uh, which is just extraordinary, groundbreaking. He um, he was very generous as a, as a director. Uh, he gave us a lot of space, even though they'd had this very successful production in, in England. He gave us a lot of space to sort of you know create our own characters and our own relationships, and in fact encouraged us to. Um, and uh, I, I found the whole thing very satisfying. I like him enormously. I think he's going to have a big career and. I hope he's listening and will hire me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the extraordinary visual production, and earlier John made a comment comparing pointillism and pixelation. And we should say that the that a key visual aspect of this show is that Surratt's work in and many of the settings are achieved through projection and animation. Mm-hmm. Working inside of that, have you all had the opportunity to see? how that physical world comes together? Well, you know, during technical rehearsals when we're all sitting in the house and and the technical aspects of the show are being put together slowly and painstakingly, we do, of course, have an opportunity to stand outside it and, and, and look at the moments individually. But... There are times, obviously, like, you know, when you're in a scene, you, ne- you obviously you never get to see that moment. And Daniel Evans, is uh, who plays George Surratt, is a very accomplished photographer. And during the whole rehearsal process, he was taking pictures, um, you know, sort of more or less on the sly. And he put together a little booklet of his photographs and gave it as an opening night gift to everybody. And some of those images I'd never seen. And they're so compelling, like... Uh, both the end of the first act and the beginning of the second act, what the lighting designer Ken Billington did in conjunction in conjunction with the projections and and what the set and costumes do, it's absolutely breathtaking. But I had no idea how visually effective it was until I saw Daniel's photographs. Mm-hmm. I wish I could see it. I really do. I've thought about throwing myself down a flight of subway stairs or something. I think a simple stomach bug <laughs> might suffice. <laughs> but I also want to ask, we were talking about your singing and, and the challenge of this material. Have you gotten any tips from Stephen Sondheim? You know, Stephen's been around a lot. Um, and I have to say, he's been incredibly j- gracious, and um, a- as has James Lapine. And they were very present for the London production. They were there f- for a full week of those rehearsals. They came and visited us in rehearsal several times. They gave some notes, not many. Um, 
may and and I would say even the notes they gave were sort of more suggestions. And then uh, Sam Buntrock kept saying, the director kept saying, you know, don't be intimidated. It's possible that Steve's going to want to work with people individually. It's possible that James is going to want to work with people individually. In fact, they never did. Um, close to opening, very close to our actually our first previews, um, James Lapine came in and worked with us or talked us through um, the four-person, what we call the quartet scene, which is where Jules and his wife Yvonne, my character, and, and Jessica Malaski come and visit George in his studio and find that Dot is there, Jenna Russell. The incredible, magnificent, marvelous Jenna Russell. I mean, I love Daniel Evans, too, a lot. Jenna Russell, I, you know, I wish I had a cape so I could throw it in a puddle for it to walk across. <laughs> I love her. Um, they are both marvelous in the show, absolutely marvelous. And I think, honestly, I think Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine are, I think they're happy with the show. I think they. Th- I think they're very happy with the show, actually. Yeah. Well, I mentioned working with Sam Buntrock, a British director, and uh, Daniel Evans and uh, Jenna Russell, both British. Mm-hmm. You yourself are British. You were born I in I am England. originally British. I am. Um, I, I lived in Britain only until I was nine years old, and then my dad picked us up and moved us all to South Africa, where he actually still lives. Um, and then I, I left South Africa when I was 16, and I went back to England for two years to get A-levels, and then I came to the States when I was 19 to go to university, and I've essentially been here ever since. I haven't lived anywhere else. I've visited, you know, gone outside the country to visit, and I've done one gig. I did one job working uh, in England for the RSC about five years ago. But apart from that, my life's been in the States since I was 19. Um, and all, and uh, all my training was here um so, yeah, I consider myself an American actor, even though I have what one voice teacher once described as a phonetic disaster for a dialect. <laughs> but you were not always going to be an actor. You were going to get a degree in what, medicine? I was going to be a doctor. God, and then, when did I tell and, that? And then go back to Cape Town or something. I was, yeah. The, the, it, the way the education system in South Africa works is that you graduate high school and you go straight into medical school. They don't have, you don't do a, a, a separate pre-med degree. So, of course, med school is seven years long, but um, I had a place at the University of Cape Town to go um, to med school. and But I was very young. I When we had gone to South Africa when I was nine, um, the academic years are different. In Britain, you end um, – the academic year ends in the in the fall, and in South Africa, it ends at the, at the end of the calendar year. So I had to go back or forward, so I went forward, and that sort of made me young relative to my class. And then also at that time, before the transition in South Africa, there was still a conscription. You still had to – go and serve in the military for two years, which I didn't have to do because I wasn't a South African. Um, And so um, I didn't want to go straight to medical school because effectively I would have been three years younger than people coming out of the army and and going to med school. And I found that prospect intimidating. So I went over to England. And once I got out of pre-transition South Africa, um, I wasn't so sure I wanted to go right back. So I thought I would just sort of defer my place in medical school. I applied for a bursary scholarship to bring me to the States and, and um, got it and came to the States uh, and did an undergraduate degree here, all the while thinking I was going to go back and go to medical school. I finished early. I finished my undergraduate degree early and had one year of support from this 
scholarship. And so they said, you know, well, you can do whatever you want to do. So I thought, well, I'll do a year of drama school. I've always been sort of interested. I'll do a year of drama school, and then I'll go to med school. <laughs> so then I did four years of drama school, and and I thought I might still go to med school. But during my fourth year of drama school, I wrote a letter to the hospital and said, you know what, I'm not coming. <laughs> <laughs> kind of bitten by the short I don't think thing. anyone was surprised except me. <laughs> well, I'm very curious because I'm wondering when the theater bug really began for you. Was it in South Africa? Because you talk about the era that we're talking about is when apartheid was still mm -hmm. in force. Mm -hmm. And those of us in America, if we know theater from that era, we think of Athel Fugard mm -hmm. and John mm -hmm. Connie and Winston mm -hmm. Nichona. Mm -hmm. Were you seeing any of that work I was, as you were actually, growing up? I was, yeah. There was, uh, there was a very famous theater in Cape Town called The Space. Um, most of um, the really sort of uh, groundbreaking, exciting work was being done at in Johannesburg, actually. There was a place called the Market Theatre where a, a vast amount of really good stuff was happening. There was a theatre in Cape Town called The Space, which was which was doing pretty darn good work, too. Um, a lot of Fugard and, uh, and a number of really spectacular actors who were sort of putting their heads uh, on, on the line uh, doing stuff which could, you know, have been closed down or incurred the wrath of the, of the apartheid government at any moment. Um, and I would see that stuff quite frequently. But actually, my interest in the theater preceded my even going to South Africa. I used to – I remember – when I was a kid, in my family moved even within Britain, and I was living in Scotland for a while. And I remember they did a a Christmas pageant, and the teacher, uh, you know, was sort of casting around for for the person who was going to portray Joseph. It probably didn't even involve speaking; just you know, wearing a tea towel on your head. And I remember just this extraordinary appetite to be chosen to you know to participate in this thing. Um, and so I, w I started doing school plays, and they really became the only thing, the extracurricular thing that I was really committed to. And then I discovered that my grandmother on my mother's side had been a performer during the war, that she had sung and she'd done sort of comedy and she'd done operettas and she'd done uh, concerts. And uh, in, the, in the Second World War, she had been a member of a theater company that had sort of gone around entertaining the troops and things like that. My grandfather had been a sea captain, and so he was away most of the war. And when he came back, I think my grandmother thought it was sort of inappropriate for the captain's wife to be an entertainer. And so she withdrew from it permanently. Um, and I had never seen her perform. And when we were in South Africa, when I was about 16 I think a little earlier than that she came to stay with us and she was she was already suffering from Alzheimer's um, it hadn't become very advanced but we had a, par a dinner party one evening and somebody was sort of urging her to do some of her old stuff and, and she was saying oh no I couldn't possibly I couldn't possibly but this guy was so sort of enchanted that he, he pressed her and pressed her and pressed her and she said okay and she went into the room she was staying in, and she came back with props, with costume pieces and props, a little hat and a little handbag, which she had brought with her. Mm -hmm. We had no idea. She may have been <laughs> just carrying in the case, just, just in case, case somebody <laughs> asked. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, you wouldn't believe it. And she went into this routine. She did monologues in sort of uh, regional accents from the northeast of England and these little songs and she did uh, these sort of comic scenes that she would do with a partner but she did both sides of them and it was hilarious I had I was just peeing myself it was so funny 
Um, and then she put them all away, and I never saw it again. Only, I only saw it one time. But <laughs> it, it was uh, this. I think there's a sort of genetic predisposition or something, because <laughs> uh, the kind of work she was doing was is exactly the kind of thing I love most: real broad shtick and <laughs> you know verbal comedy. I loved it. <laughs> now let's come back to drama school. Coming mm. out of time in England. Scotland, as you mentioned, South Africa. Mm-hmm. Was there a cultural adjustment when you started training for drama in America? Oddly enough, no, because the woman who had been the master voice coach at the Royal Shakespeare Company, a woman called Cicely Berry, um, who has written a number of books and, and, and is really, I think, internationally regarded as a master in the field, she had been married to a man who had some connection, I, I'm not exactly sure what it was, with the University of North Carolina. And so she had been approached by the faculty there before I ever got there, and she had accepted an invitation to come and teach for a limited period, I think only about a month or six weeks. And so she came over, and each of the years I was there, she visited us for a period of time, and she sort of laid down the groundwork for the training, and which was then carried on by other faculty members. But she essentially imported a kind of British RSC slanted mentality about how to approach text, how to deal with Shakespeare, you know. Um, And so in an odd way, I think I was getting sort of the most British kind of theater education I could have gotten in the the States. And so there's certainly a cultural – I mean – Coming up, coming up in a British tradition, even though I was living in South Africa and subsequently in the States, coming up in a, with British roots, my idea of what it meant to be an actor was that I would go into a repertory company, not necessarily the RSC, but something like the RSC, and that I would come up through that company and I would become a theater actor. And then eventually I might do some film or TV, but I would essentially be a theater actor. I never aspired to be a TV or movie actor even. Um, and... And that's kind of the way I've come up in New York. I went to L.A. for a while. I was on a TV show for a while. I've done some movie work. I've done some TV work. But it doesn't actually draw me that much. I love being in the room with the people I'm telling the story to. Um, and I love the sort of community aspect of being in a company, being in a production, building those things together. And it struck me really forceful, forcibly. I was on L.A. Law for one season and back uh, in the at the very beginning of the 90s. And lived in in LA for a year was on the show for a year and there was never there was no single time when all the members of the cast were gathered together in a whole year mm. um which you know is a sort of really because str- you just turned up to do your scenes you when you were called scene. yeah you may go to a publicity event you may go to a party you know there may be something like that but you never we never actually congregated at work together mm. um and to me, the sort of the establishing of family and, you know, uh, ersatz family, of course, you know, they come and they go. But those groups of people that you stick with for a period of time and, and, and put on a show with, you know, that's as important to me as the show itself. So have you had that experience? Oh, you know, of really being in a company. Oh, God, yes. I mean, I, oh, you mean an ex- a, a, a rap company? Yeah. No, I haven't actually. I haven't, but I've been in companies of actors in 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 shows which which I really treasured, really valued. The small ones and the big ones, the mm. uh, the, the the smallest and the, the the smallest and the most brilliant in a way was doing Copenhagen with Phil 
Bosco and Blair Brown, and you know, that was just heaven. That was absolutely fantastic. But I loved the Forty Second Street Company too. And you, you know, I was playing the the the, the older character, and um, and he had all these kids, these dancing, singing kids. It was unbelievable the amount of energy and commitment that those performers put out. And the the chorus dancers in a Broadway show are they can teach you a real kind of you know spiritual lesson because they are putting out so much more energy than anyone else. They have a sort of um, unarguable talent in terms of, of the degree to which they can dance and the degree to which they can sing. There's no equivocating like with actors, you know, maybe he's a good actor in the show, maybe he's not a good actor in the show. These guys can sing and they can dance. And they put it all out there with no expectation of really being recognized or being seen. It's not about celebrity. It's just about being a member of the group and being excellent in the group. It's not about personal advancement. Um, and I find that really remarkable and admirable, and I loved being around it. Well, using 42nd Street as an example, comparing that to your experience with L.A. Law in Hollywood, you were the star of 42nd Street, you and Julian Marsh. You're talking about all the, the two dozen dancers, whatever number there were. How, other than during rehearsals, how much does the star of the show relate to the rest of the company? You're, you're in the same theater, in the same stage. You have your dressing room, they have theirs. Do you yeah. really relate to one another? Well, yeah, absolutely you do. I mean, I have to say, I have to sort of... Um, Again, this is not false modesty, but Julian Marsh is is really hardly the star of the show. I mean, Peggy Sawyer is mm -hmm. so clearly the star of the show. You know, the male star. Well, yeah, but you know, anyway, I'm not. I'm not really. <laughs> I'm certainly not dancing. I'm not really singing. I mean, I'm getting a lot of kudos for doing very little, actually. But um, no, absolutely, I would say uh, the degree to which chorus and principals are integrated in a musical. I think might come as a surprise to people. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of any real distinction. My, you know, yes, I had my own dressing room and the chorus guys were in one room and the chorus girls were in the other, but, but it was, yes, it was completely interactive. It was, it really was like an extended family. And we were together a long time. We were together a year. Is, is that the case for most of the shows you've been in, where the, the entire cast relates to one another, or do you kind of like all show up at the theater, do your show, and then go home? I would say generally people interrelate to a, a large degree. Like in this, in Sunday in the Park, for example, we we had a very nice opening night party, but because it was because there was a lot of hoopla surrounding it, you know, and 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 Daniel and Jenna were were sort of doing a lot of press and a lot of people taking pictures of them. We felt that we didn't really sort of as a group, as a, as a company, we didn't get to spend a lot of time with each other. So Todd Hames, the producer of The Roundabout, very generously offered to throw us another party, which mm -hmm. he is. And the cast and crew are going to gather and just, you know, sort of be together because that's what we like to do. Um, and in all, I would say in all the – some of my best friends, for example, are people I met – for example, the great Dana Ivey. You know, now we are not so far apart in age, it would seem. But 20 years ago, when we worked together uh, in Kevin Klein's Hamlet down at the public, she was a seasoned and and very highly regarded actress. And I was a beginner. And we hit it off, and we've been friends ever since. And I, uh, we have breakfast together every couple of weeks. And I probably see more of her than of anyone else in my life, you know, and uh, in my social circle. And I would have thought we would have... A very strange match at the beginning, but we, but we we have this fantastic friendship. Yeah. We keep mentioning company. 
when you came to New York, mm-hmm. you were taken up fairly quickly by the New York Shakespeare Festival. Yeah. I'm counting, and probably not even a complete list, five shows in three years, which yeah. is pretty unusual. Yeah. Can you talk about that experience of coming into the New York theater community and what the opportunities were for you at the public at that time? I had a couple of really lucky breaks when I was starting out, and one of them was certainly the work at the public, but the the sort of the sequence of events was that I was at the University of North Carolina, which has attached to it a, a, a regional theater called Playmakers. And at the time that I was there, the artistic director of the Playmakers Company had a policy of using the graduate students in as many shows as possible. So uh, it was the closest thing to a rep company experience that I've ever had. I did a lot of shows there. But because I didn't yet have a green card, because I was on a student visa, I wasn't allowed to accumulate hours for equity membership. So even though I was doing all these equity shows, I didn't have anything to show for it in terms of you know getting into the union. So the artistic director who left, actually, at the end of my time as a student there. I stayed on to teach for a year and a half, during which time I got my green card. So this artistic director, Greg Boyd, who's now running the Alley Theater down in Houston, he went up to a theater called Stage West of Massachusetts, and he very generously offered me a couple of jobs right right after I finished teaching in Chapel Hill and said, I'll give you your equity card because I know you haven't been legally, you haven't been able to accumulate these hours. So... I had the great good fortune of walking out of school and getting my equity card. And then there was a a lady who was very friendly with the literary manager up there who came up to see the shows who was a New York agent. So she said, do you have representation? I said, no. She said, I'd be happy to represent (laughs) you. So I had this insane good fortune of getting an agent before I ever moved into New York. And then she – one of the first things that she submitted me for was a production, actually, of Henry the Fourth at um, at the Public, which I didn't get. But they brought me back into audition just a short time after that for Romeo and Juliet. And in this, the timing was kind of brilliant because Joe Papp, as you, you, I'm sure you remember, had announced that he was going to do all the plays in six years. And in in the event, it took him longer than that. But but his mission, his his sort of his his great sort of showman gesture about it was that he was going to use big movie stars. He was going to bring in all these big movie stars. And at the time, he said, "We're not going to use Brits. We're going to you know we're going to have major American movie stars do Shakespeare." And some of the productions were more successful than others. But because he was expending so much energy trying to attract this celeb- celebrity element. He said he wanted to put together a core of performers who would play the other roles. And um, after he cast me in the second role, he said, I remember him saying literally the words, welcome to the core. Um, and and so he sort of approved my casting in the sequence of shows, which went from playing the prince in Romeo and Juliet, who essentially has only you know two entrances and one costume. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, and then I went up to playing some great parts. Um, I played Laertes in Hamlet, and um, oh, I, I, you know I, I had some great opportunities, and uh, all under sort of under his wing. Um, in fact, one of the happiest was a production of Cymbeline that Joanne Acolytus directed, which I think was one of the very last things before Joe passed away. And it was because of that production, which he really liked, even though the New York Times didn't that he appointed Joanne Acolytus as his successor. Hmm. But it was a very it was a, a very happy time for me and a very fortunate time in terms of 
timing because there was all that work available, and Joe decided that I was, you know, going to be part of the team. If I'm counting correctly, something like five shows in about a two to three year period. With, yeah, I did. I think I did a total of seven. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they there did was a, a couple delay a later. later. Yeah. 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 yeah, but yes, I, I, I sort of went from one to another for a period of time. And then you made your Broadway debut in 1989, Artist Descending a Staircase. Mm. Was that was a very odd experience for a variety of reasons. It was a radio play written by Tom Stoppard, whose presence in New York, of course, has been you know significant in the past few years. It was a play that he wrote, and he told me this subsequently. He said, I set myself the task of writing a play that couldn't be staged. <laughs> um, but then somebody, uh, some ballsy young guy whose name I don't remember, directed it in London, and then um, they brought it over here. And it wasn't entirely successful because there was a whole layer. For example, there was a blind girl who comes into a room and she hears a record being played of a ping-pong game. And she comments on the ping-pong game thinking it's happening in front of her. But when you put that on a stage, you see that it's not happening in front of us. So, you know, that level of the play was removed all the way down. And many of the the sort of smartest jokes about the play didn't really work because the audience could see it. But it was uh, it was a lovely experience and it was a it was a good cast and we had a good time. It wasn't very successful. (laughs) (laughs) But a good time was had by all. A good time was had by all. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because even even when you did new plays like La Bette, which you did on Broadway, it had a very classical feel to it. It yeah. felt like like an undiscovered Moliere play. Yeah. So it's fascinating as you went forward with all of these Shakespeare's and many of these classical seeming works that then you come in 1997 to 1776. I mean, had had. <laughs> Had you ever thought you, – you said you don't think of yourself as a musical performer, but what was the reaction when you when you were approached for that? Well, you know, one of the very first things I did um, after, I w- after I came into New York was I went down to Atlanta to the Alliance in Atlanta, and I did a production of Peter Pan, and I played Captain Hook. So that was my first professional musical. And Jay Binder, who, you know, the, the celebrated casting director and the sort of the pillar of the New York theater, just decided I was going to get this job. And he actually, out of his own pocket, paid for a couple of coaching sessions for me with Ted Sperling, who's gone on to become, you know, the great musical, musical director. director sure. um, and so the two of them were incredibly generous and gracious and gave me their time and, and uh, resources. And they got me this job. So I went down to the Alliance and I and I played this part in this musical and had a great old time and came away from it knowing that I could sort of get through a show um, speak singing but came away from it pretty sure that I wasn't a singer Um, and so when 1776 came along I said to them you know I'm not a singer you guys know I'm not a singer and they said well it's not really a singing part don't worry about it you know it's the closest thing to a play with songs that's you know ever been written as a Broadway musical and we need really sort of dramatic interaction between the characters on stage, and this guy has to have a sort of dark element and a sort of haughty element, and we think you're the guy for the job. I was like, mm, thank you, I think. Um, they made me audition for it. I have to say, Scott Ali- Ellis, who, sorry, Scott, I almost called you Scott Elliott, Scott Ellis, uh, who's become a dear friend, um, made me audition for it five times. And I was, uh, you know, I tease him about it to this day. Um, 
But it was, but that was a great, that was a great experience uh, doing seventeen seventy six. Brent Spiner, you know, playing John Adams. He's a wonderful man. He really is a smart, funny stage animal. You know, we all know know him because of Star Trek. But he's a he's a fantastic stage performer. Um, yeah, so that, that's how that happened. And the the character you played, John Dickinson, is mm. the one of the representatives from Pennsylvania mm-hmm. who famously is 180 degrees opposed to Benjamin Franklin's position right. of, uh, of uh, starting the revolution and all that. Right. And your character is much more conservative mm-hmm. and uh, does not want to uh, start any fuss with the King mm-hmm. of England. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How did it feel being a person born in Britain saying, let's stick with England, with the mother country? <laughs> well, you know... I have very mixed feelings about uh, Britain and sort of monarchy and all those things. So, you know, I, I, I'm probably innately now more sympathetic to an American position. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it, John Dickinson is, a, is an interesting character in 1776 because he's not the villain. You know, the, the guy from South Carolina turns out to, to, to be the villain, the Greg Edelman part uh, in our production. Um, and Dickinson is... You know, he's not opposed to the principles of of democracy. He's just opposed to actually fighting against the king. He's not even opposed, I believe, to fighting against the British army. He just doesn't want to fight against the king. Mm. So, you know, he's a man of principle, and he ends up – historically, he ends up being um, rehabilitated. And if I'm not wrong, he actually – he actually signs the Constitution. Is that right? He signs. I, I, he comes yeah, well, back all, and all, signs. All of them signed. Yeah. Yeah. And he's the one I think said the result, that that Americans were resolved to die free men rather than live as slaves. Yeah. And so obviously he did see the light. Yeah. He had a turnaround. Your next Broadway appearance, another classic, Electra, mm. by way of the McCarter mm. first before mm. Broadway mm. Uh, production with Zoe Wanamaker. Mm. Um, can you just talk a little about that show and and that conception of that play at, at that time? Well, th- that was one of the productions. There, there are actually many of them on my resume. I'm noticing that have co- come over from England and being been essentially restaged in the states by the same director and. That's sort of a special beast in itself because you're not creating something from the ground up. But this was a, 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 a remarkable experience to be that close to Zoe Wanamaker going through that experience every night. You know, her father, the, the very famous Sam Wanamaker, was an American who went over to England, um, blacklisted and went over to England and remained very American all his life. But, you know, is the father of, of this very English daughter who's now one of the great stars of the English stage. Um, and so, so she, you know, she's sort of returning to her American roots. But she, I think, probably to some extent because she's her father's daughter, has a, a, a commitment to a kind of emotional investment in the work, which is m- probably, in you know, stereotypical distinction, much more like an American performer than a British performer. And standing next to her and watching her go through that grieving process, I should also say that you know her father, who she adored and had a wonderful relationship with, had died a couple of years earlier, and she's playing Electra, who is grieving the death of her father. Agamemnon, and um, it was a very personal experience for her, and I was sort of awed by it to be to be in the presence of it. Um, it, it was heartbreaking and gut wrenching to be to be with her in it. Um, and we also had Claire Bloom playing Clytemnestra, and that was remarkable. She's a you know she's a an amazing person and a and a great star, and um, it was a great joy to be with her. 
and Pat Carroll, who mm-hmm. you know is a is a great personality of uh, of a different ilk. She was she was great too. We had a we had a really remarkable time. The only thing I didn't love so much about that show was that the stage was basically dirt earth and <laughs> we had to slog around through that but it was also a very beautiful set design um uh with uh you know basically just sort of dirt and then this door that opened at the end and revealed this extraordinary white staircase that we you know we drug I guess this up to his death um it was it was a that was a great experience there are two shows that were separated by about four and a half years on Broadway, both plays mm. that involve three Michaels. Yourself, <laughs> yes. the playwright Michael Frayne, yes. and the director Michael Blakemore. Yes. How did you become involved with the other two Michaels in these two shows, Democracy and Copenhagen? Through the audition process for Copenhagen, which was mm-hmm. the, fir- uh, the first of them, um, Michael Frayne, a really remarkable British playwright, and Michael Blakemore, and a remarkable Australian director who's uh, had... Uh, a great deal of success on Broadway. In fact, the year we did Copenhagen, he won the Tony Award for both Copenhagen and for Kiss Me Kate, his musical production. First director ever to win for both a play and a musical the same season. Same season, yeah, which was remarkable. And um, um, I auditioned for that again several times and um, had a very happy experience. That, of I would say, of all the plays that have been brought, uh, productions that have been brought over and recast in the States but directed by the same director, that experience, the experience of Copenhagen, felt the most like we were reinventing the show. Even though we had the same text, obviously, we had the same design um, and the same director. Uh, he gave us the blocking for in the first few days. He said, I know this works, so let's establish this, then we can change it. And I think we did change it pretty significantly. We started from that template, and then we discovered it amongst ourselves. And the great thing about that play, I think, even though it pretends to be about nuclear physics, is that it's really about the relationships amongst this extended family. He's, you know, Heisenberg considers himself to be the son of Niels Bohr, these nuclear physicists from the, the era of the Second World War. Um, it's a family drama. I mean, it's really, in, in some ways, a great big glorious soap opera about these family feelings, these intense um, feelings of, of affection and recrimination. And you have to build that from the ground up with the people who are playing the parts. And um, that, I would say, is probably the happiest experience of my career. I had a great time. Had you seen the English production? I didn't see the English production. Because no. a number of people have commented that there was a chilliness to the English production and that the American cast, and we include you, really warmed it up. Yeah. And and was that anything that was conscious or simply a byproduct of the different actors in the role? Probably, with- probably the latter, I, because none of us had seen the British production. I know, I know Philip and Blair hadn't seen it either. And um, I think it was just a function of, you know, how how the temperaments worked in the room. And Blair and I already knew each other um, and were, you know, were good friends. And oddly, I think that allowed our relationship in the play to be chillier. She she um, decided that her character in the play didn't like Heisenberg, had never liked Heisenberg, didn't trust Heisenberg, which is sort of, I think, I'm speaking for you, Blair, I hope you don't mind, which is sort of, I think, a, a, an, an extrapolation of what's in the text. I think it would be possible to take the text and, and to sort of uh, believe that that relationship wasn't quite so... Um, untrusting but and and I because Phil Bosco is you know he's a great American actor he's he's sort of um, a hero for a lot of 
people in terms of the kind of career he's had, the kind of work he's done, and the consistency with which his work has been, you know, extraordinary. And so I was perfectly happy to surrender to a sort of reverential, affectionate relationship with Phil Bosco. So it kind of just kind of played itself to some extent once we learned the lines. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had a great time on that play. There is obviously an intimacy to a three-actor play Mm -hmm. in which, in my recollection, pretty much you were all there most of the time, time. all three of you. Democracy, the next Michael Mm -hmm. Frayn play in which you appeared, had uh, a larger canvas, Mm -hmm. and you, to some degree, sat to the side of it a lot of the time, literally physically. Yeah, I played a character who was on stage almost all the time. I don't remember if... I left for more than about 10 seconds, but I sat at a little cafe table on the side of the stage the whole show and observed much more than I actually participated, um, which I had expected to be a bit of a challenge, but it wasn't, in fact. Uh, I really enjoyed just observing it, just watching it all the time. Um, 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 it's a Democracy is, I think, a much more... Um, a much more sort of political puzzle of a play than Copenhagen is, and I think less intense in its personal relationships. Um, it's a little cooler, I think, uh, than Copenhagen. Um, and I wasn't as, you know, I wasn't in, in the center of it to the same extent. Um, so, I you know, I enjoyed it enormously. It was a fantastic company of guys, and I, I really enjoyed being with them. But I don't have a sense of ownership to the same extent that I do with Copenhagen. I would say, uh, Copenhagen, uh, unequivocally, I would say, the high point of my career to date. <laughs> well, in between <clears throat> Copenhagen, which was 2000, and Democracy, which was 2004, 42nd Street, the revival of that mm. in 2001, you were by that time known for your singing and dancing <laughs> in 1776. <laughs> Did you go after that for? Did they come after you? What, what happened there? They um, they approached me about it. I mean, they they... They did, uh, you know, as they did with um, Sunday in the Park. They've been very gracious. They sort of bring me in at the at the last minute. They don't, you know, they they didn't make me go through a lot of preliminary auditions, but they bring me in to uh, to to do the callbacks. <laughs> and Forty um, Second um, Street, I thoroughly enjoyed. It was sort of like going away to camp. I I felt underqualified, you know, uh, I mean, ridiculously so. They literally, they wanted me to do a time step in the curtain call. (laughs) 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 I couldn't even do a time step. Although Christine Eversole, they wanted Christine to do a time step too, and she didn't want to do it either. (laughs) (laughs) Christine Eversole, yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that made me feel better because there's no question that she's a great musical star, and if she didn't want to do a time step, I didn't feel so bad about it. But... um, the the sort of the pure kind of color and and feathers and bugle beads and costumes and dancing girls and boys and it was just it was so sort of old world fantastic musical and all that tapping and you know all that good humor and uh, good old American razzmatazz it was that was it was fantastic and of course your character Julian Marsh saying to the young ingenue Peggy Sawyer has one of the great lines from American theater yeah. you're going out there a youngster you've got to come back yeah, a star yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's a it's a great old myth of, of the theater that show it's uh it's it's really rousing and actually you know I uh, I mentioned earlier that I came over to the states on a on a bursary scholarship to the University of North Carolina, and one of the things that the scholarship afforded me was um, internships during the summers, and one of the internships I did um, was to come and work up 
uh, in the Schubert offices up on Broadway as a sort of an intern. And it became pretty clear to me that sitting at a desk in the Schubert offices was not really what I wanted to be doing. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to Phil Smith and I said, you know, I'm much more interested in what's going on in the theaters. And he gave me carte blanche. He said, go to any of our theaters, introduce yourself around, see what you can come up with. So um, I actually ended up sort of helping out in rehearsal, replacement rehearsals for the, that wonderful production of Amadeus that was running way back then, and, you know, in the in the um, 80s. Um, but one of the things I, I fell in love with were the opening moments of 42nd Street, which was running at the time. And I would sneak into that theater and I would watch the curtain go up with those tapping feet night after night after night. I wouldn't stay for the whole show necessarily, but that was just something that sort of encapsulated my experience of being in New York for that summer as a, as a very young guy. I mean, I think it was only 21. And that would have been about 1980, 81. That was about That's yeah. And so when I actually came to do it myself, and they, they retained the choreography, and they retained that moment, and um, it was it was exciting. It was, you know, it was lovely to be a part of it on stage. <laughs> A few moments ago, you you, you talked about ownership yeah. of of a show, even, and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about what seems to be a clear ownership position in your recent work with Classic Stage Company. Yeah. You have done Hamlet, Richard the Second, Richard the Third. You're about to direct uh, uh, Agamemnon in a one night event for them. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about? how that has evolved because it's it's a very unique relationship to see yeah. an actor working through the classical canon at the same company. Yeah. Um, Brian Kulik directed me in a production for the public theater of Time and of Athens in the Park back in 96, I think it was, maybe 97. Um, I think 96. Anyway, um, and he, he subsequently he uh, was a director, uh, a resident director at the public theater, and then he became the artistic director of Classic Stage Company, and we wa- had wanted to work together again for years. Um, and uh, so finally, a few years ago, we decided we would do Hamlet. And Brian and I work really well together. We approach things differently. Brian is a very sort of, he's a fearsome intellectual. He reads widely and deeply and comes at things from a very sort of broad conceptual place. And I tend to be very um, uh, sort of micro-focused on the text and try to get inside it and bring it to life literally sort of word by word and phrase by phrase and my principle basically is if I can make every line seem honest to myself in terms of the way I'm delivering it and, and the sort of connections I'm making between them then the whole thing is going to is going to sort of be alive Brian is has this directorial vision which is sort of and um the complete opposite, I would say, of my approach. And we meet in the middle, and we've had, we had a very exciting time working together on Timon. So when it came time to do Hamlet, he gave me, he was unbelievably generous in this, he gave me great leeway and allowed me a degree of input which was the closest imaginable thing to co-directing. It really was. I mean, he allowed me an enormous amount of sway. Um, and so... I was eager to do it again. We did Richard II. I would say he allowed me, you know, even more um, space. And so the third time, he actually said to me, you know, we should, we, you should, we should just call it co-directing. And then, you know, because there were times when my my contribution to the process was so significant that I just felt like a bossy, a bossy actor, you know. Um, and he said, you know, I would, I don't want you to have to feel that way. So let's call you co-director. So. 
we did actually co-direct Richard III. I'm not sure I would do it again. I think playing a part that substantial while you're trying to, you know, carry the responsibilities of a co-director is... um, I don't think it serves anybody very well. I found myself sometimes on stage in the middle of of one of my big scenes taking notes, you know, in my head, and that's not useful for anybody, I think. Well, that kind of then leads to the question, do you see yourself as a director, not on stage acting, but as the director? We're playing with that as a a possibility. Um, I'm not going to do a Shakespeare there this year. Instead, I'm going to... Brian has um, decided to produce three... Greek tragedies, uh, which have been newly translated by the poet Anne Carson. So early next year, they're going to be, or no, late this year, they're going to be produced. And I'm going to direct one of those. Um, I'm going to direct the first of them, the Agamemnon. We're doing an Agamemnon and then um, an Electra and an Orestes, each of them by a different playwright, but translated, as I say, by Anne Carson. So, yeah, so I'm directing my first you know, commercial, I mean, not-for-profit, but you know what I mean, um, production of fully staged, fully technical, you know, fully designed. (laughs) Help! (laughs) (laughs) And eventually, maybe even a musical. (laughs) You know, why not? (laughs) Why not? Well, at the moment, Michael, of course, you're appearing in uh, the Roundabouts Revival Sunday in the Park with George. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work at the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.